0: Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. Colin Gordon is a professor of history at the University of Iowa, but the subject matter for his new book is St. Louis. In that, it's a bit like one of his previous books, Mapping Decline, which won praise for its examination of white flight in the greater St. Louis area. This book takes on the suburbs of St. Louis and their fraught history of racial segregation and inequality. Gordon's research focuses in particular on Elmwood Park and Meacham Park, two African-American enclaves that existed for decades in the midst of St. Louis County with much different conditions than their white neighbors. The book is called Citizen Brown, and it was released by the University of Chicago Press last month. Joining me in studio to talk about it is Colin Gordon. Colin, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. And for those of you listening, have you have you experienced the effects of living in a segregated community? That includes in particular Meacham Park or Elmwood Park. Give us a call at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Or you can send us a tweet at STL on air or email us at talk at stlpublicradio.org. Now, Colin, you've been studying St. Louis for quite a few years now. What drew you to these smaller enclaves that are front and center within this book?
1: I mean, what drew me uh, initially was um, the Kirkwood shootings in 2008. Uh, That was just after my book, Mapping Decline, came out. Um, And it drew my attention to these um, older African-American enclaves that uh, predated conventional suburbanization, um, but were left as sort of pockets of unincorporated, underserviced land. in which uh, you know basic services sewer policing schools uh, were much lesser and much baser for those citizens.
0: And for people who haven't been living here um, until recently remind us what happened in this Kirkwood shooting and, and how does that tie into your bigger framework?
1: So my book is, is about citizenship for African-Americans in St. Louis County. And what happened in Kirkwood was that uh, Meacham Park in Kirkwood had a sort of long standing debate about whether this little unincorporated pocket of African-American occupancy would be incorporated into the city of Kirkwood. It finally was incorporated in 1991 and a local contractor named Cookie Thornton thought he would get some of the redevelopment business. But what happened, and which is, I think, a, a strong theme through the book, is that rather than get a benefit of being a citizen of Kirkwood, Cookie Thornton became a target of the city of Kirkwood, and particularly of aggressive code enforcement, because all of Kirkwood's municipal codes, like you can't stack plywood in your driveway, you can't park on the street, now extended into Meacham Park. Mm-hmm. And so uh, rather than, as I argue in the book, rather than be a sort of citizen of Kirkwood, Uh, Cookie Thornton was a subject, which was a sort of familiar uh, experience for African-Americans in those settings.
0: And he then ended up shooting some people at at Kirkwood City Hall. It was just a a very terrible ending.
1: Yeah, he became a chronic antagonist of the city because of the the treatment. Uh, Of course, you know, it doesn't justify the the horrific violence. But, you know, what was notable in in the immediate aftermath was that the residents, many of the residents of Meacham Park, you know, thought it was... Uh, really just a matter of time before before something boiled over.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, that, so that's one of the horror stories you kind of start this book with. And one of the other horror stories was, uh, more recently, the death of Michael Brown. And you did end up naming the book after him, Citizen Brown. So Michael Brown didn't live in Elmwood Park or Meacham Park. Um, help us understand what's the connection there between his life and death and what you're looking at in this book.
1: So my book looks at two different kinds of settings. One are are these older African-American enclaves like Meacham Park uh, and Elmwood Park, which predate suburbanization. And so the new suburbs sort of come around these older African-American enclaves, break around them like rocks in a stream, and just keep going. They don't extend their sewer lines through, their water lines, anything. But what I... uh, sort of discovered as I looked closer into the sort of background in North County was that very very similar conditions existed for citizens in racially transitional neighborhoods like Ferguson, mm-hmm. that many of the same assumptions, that African Americans were out of place in the suburbs, that they were seen as threats, um, held... Uh, in those neighborhoods as well.
0: So this was sort of one of the underlying facts of both Michael Brown's life and then the unrest that ended up following his shooting.
1: Yes. And, and another important theme of the book, uh, So, so I, uh, both with the case of Meacham Park and Elmwood Park but also with Ferguson, I do- devote a lot of attention to how and why municipal and school district boundaries were drawn in the way they were. They're, they're really pointedly drawn to accomplish segregation. And what that meant for Ferguson in the long run was as a tiny little postage stamp municipality of older housing, it found it, struggled, found it harder and harder to keep the lights on at City Hall because it lost its property tax base or it declined in value. It lost its sales tax base and it abated most of its commercial properties. So it's one solution for revenue was, you know, to stop young black kids for jaywalking, which is what happened to Michael Brown.
0: And how that whole tragedy unfolded from there. Um, It's a really interesting book. So we're talking today to author Colin Gordon about his book, Citizen Brown. We also have two more guests joining us in studio today. We're joined by David Dwight, and he's the lead strategy catalyst and executive director at Forward Through Ferguson. David, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. And we're also joined by Erica Williams. She's the founder and executive director of the nonprofit, A Red Circle. She's also a Lifelong North County resident. Erica, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, David Dwight, Colin Gordon writes about the municipal boundaries and school district boundaries and the way that they were drawn to include and to exclude. How have we seen the effects of this play out in our region?
2: Yeah, in so many ways across our region, uh, which really became the center of the study of the Ferguson Commission, right? Which said, okay, we had this incident, the killing of Michael Brown in Ferguson, but that it really sparked. Um, community outrage because of these experiences, not just with the criminal justice system, but with education, with the law, with municipal courts, uh, with so many areas of life. And so I think we see that today um, with school districts across the region that have wildly different amounts of resources um, and experiences that they uh, uh, provide for their students. um, Also because of the poverty that exists across the region as well. Um, That means that some students are experiencing huge amounts of trauma, some of it from police and the court system that they interact with, but also other forms of systemic racism. And so it really creates this landscape that causes all the disparities that we see in every area of life uh, for black residents.
0: And at the same time, Michael Brown's death has served as a catalyst for so many organizations to rise up and and try to change some of these conditions. Erica Williams, in, in what you witness as a North County resident, Are they able to have an impact on these decades of of problems that Colin Gordon writes about?
3: Um, Yes and no. So I started a red circle in March of 2017 in direct response to what happened. because I am a lifelong North County resident, my children are students in the Ferguson-Florison School District. And they had to wait to start their school year one week which caused some trauma and things of that nature
0: they had to wait because of the protests that had broken out the protests that had broken out there were safety
3: concerns and things of that nature there were still you know traffic blocking the streets and all of that and so the school buses couldn't freely travel through the streets in the school district and so my kids had to wait you know first day of school everyone has that excitement about getting ready to go to school fast forward five years later Ferguson Florissant has decided this year that they are going to make all of the students from sixth grade and higher use clear backpacks. Mm -hmm. So that has become another source of trauma within the schools dealing with lack of resources and things of that nature. Instead of coming to some type of a solution to actually um, look at school violence, they kind of penalize the children and one final point I'll make with just the Ferguson-Florison School District um, and how that goes into this conversation, they separated the primary and, and the elementary school children. So pre-K through second grade is at one school. Mm-hmm. Three through five is at a different school. So at A Red Circle, we provide mentoring and tutoring to children who are dealing with trauma. Mm-hmm. They are now resource officers placed in these pre-K through two schools.
0: When you say resource officers, you mean police officers? I mean police officers. In the pre-K and in kindergarten. In the
3: pre-K through second grade school. So it's kind of like what happened 5 years ago is almost taking us in a direction that we don't want to go instead of moving the community forward, it's taking it backward.
0: David Dwight, what goes through your head when you're, you're hearing some of these things Erica describes?
2: Yeah, what Erica is describing about the experience of students of color in schools really uh, connects back to what Colin spoke to about uh, whether people are treated as citizens or as subjects acted upon by their governments or their education systems. And I think that's one example where students of color are are seen as criminals, seen as more adult um, than they actually are when they're children within school districts. Um, And it's experience that people have all across the region. I've had the experience of going to West uh, municipalities that are mostly white in St. Louis and been seen immediately as criminal. Um, My car broke down in one neighborhood that I was in visiting a friend um, and ended up needing my whole engine replaced. Um, But when the police were called, I was seen as suspect, suspect. Um, I ended up being on the side of the road for more than an hour as they did extensive background checks beyond what was needed for my car breaking down. They're
0: running you for warrants and things like that? Oh, yeah,
2: checking to see if I owned the car, checking all of these things, really questioning why I was even there present in this white neighborhood. And
0: this is after the events of Ferguson? This is in the last couple of years this happened to the last to you. couple years. Um, Colin Gordon, hearing some of these stories today, um, <laughs> I guess are you unpleasantly surprised to hear that that things are not changing or
1: uh, no, I mean, i'm I'm not surprised. Um I mean, I think the key thing that that comes out of all these stories is, you know, we have a system not just in St. Louis, but in this country, in which uh, we we venerate home ownership, and then we uh, we allow these little municipalities to decide who lives in their borders. And then, we use homeownership to distribute all sorts of very important public goods, like schools, like sanitation, like recreation, um, and in ways that are that are dramatically unequal mm-hmm. across even a single metropolitan setting. And that I think is is fundamentally wrong.
0: And yet at the same time, you know, this the greater St. Louis community had some really intense conversations in the last year about this better together plan to merge St. Louis and city and county into one mega city. And it ended up drawing, frankly, a lot of pushback from progressives who were concerned that by doing away with all these smaller municipalities, it would actually dilute black political power. It would put it so it really is just the wealthier white suburbs would end up running the show for everybody. Is there some way that we can come together and all be, you know, not have this this system that we have um, without further disenfranchisement? Colin, any thoughts on that? Well, I, I
1: mean, I would push back a little bit on your characterization of the better together because I think there was a potential for buy-in uh, across the county and across the city for some form of a merger particularly erasing the municipal court boundaries and all these small police departments i think the failure of that process was um, about engaging with the community on both sides of the border mm-hmm. that it was such a top-down process and you know with the statewide referendum and then with you know what's his
3: name taken off in handcuffs that's Sort of Steve
0: Stenger, you're referring to our yeah. former county executive, Erica? Yes. And
3: also part of the issue that I had with the plan was it didn't do anything for the school districts. Yeah. It I wouldn't mean, have touched it those. It would not have touched those. And we know that way school districts are funded with property taxes, real property, personal property, that's very inequitable. Right now the, the neighborhoods that have higher tax bases pay lower rates. The neighborhoods that have lower tax bases because they have to make up the taxes. But that doesn't put all of the resources that are necessary within the schools. And so then schools have to look towards other funding like state funding, federal funding. But what that does is that just basically puts schools at a bare minimum. But I'm going back again to the Ferguson-Florison School District because that's where my kids go. Um, when my children were in eighth grade, for examples, we didn't have, they didn't have math books to bring home. To do studying,
0: they had to keep them at school. They had to keep them at school because other them. classes
3: needed them, and so my kids would bring home worksheets. Wow! And a couple of times, if the worksheet wasn't like typed correctly or copied correctly, it had typos. You can't learn <laughs> angles and and m x plus b, you know, and, and all that kind of stuff with typos, and so that's the kind of things that we're facing.
0: Yeah, uh, Colin Gordon. So, I mean, the
1: ferguson florison School District is really a great historical example of, of the core problem here because back in the 1930s, you had the Ferguson-Florissant or the ferguson Florissant School District and the Kinlock School District, mm-hmm. and the Kinlock School District was a large district that included what is now the municipality of Berkeley. Well, Berkeley, which was in an unincorporated area, didn't like sharing their school resources with Kinlock, which is 99% African American. So even though the schools were completely segregated, they wanted to split those tax uh, uh, bases. So the city of Berkeley incorporated in a little donut around Kinlock, isolating it completely. Kinlock then became the poorest school district in the state, and Berkeley became one of the wealthiest. And it wasn't until 1975 that the Justice Department said, this will not stand. You
0: can't do that constitutionally. Yeah,
1: and and at which point Ferguson, Florissant, and Berkeley started fighting with each other as to whose fault it was. And the Justice Department said, okay, fine, you're all in the same district. And they created the ferguson and district. Mm,
0: That's an interesting history there.
2: Yeah, and it it really is that the landscape that we have now didn't plop out of nowhere. It it wasn't just created yesterday. And I think Colin's book really illustrates this. Race shaped so many of the decisions. The municipal boundaries, our educational system that created what we have today. And I think while so much of our fragmentation was created because of race— consolidation is just a tool. And it really depends how we're applying that tool. You can apply a tool well and get great out, uh, get great results or really poorly and have a shoddy uh, new system that just perpetuates the problems that we have now. And so there's a real need to intentionally apply an equity lens, to think about race intentionally, to engage communities that are often left out of the the uh, conversation if we want to get somewhere different.
0: How critical do you think the school piece is to that? Can we talk about maybe um, putting economic development together and consolidating that without touching the schools?
2: Really, no, we can't. And I, I really appreciated how much um, pushback there was that schools weren't included in, in Better Together. And the other piece of that, having gone through the Ferguson Commission process and been staffed during that, these, uh, the child well-being working group ended up having to resort to putting together a financing task force as their chief uh, recommendation in that space because we hadn't done the work to figure out what equity looks like in our school system. And so I think it would be dangerous to just say, let's consolidate them to consolidate them without really thinking about how is this going to implac- impact black and brown youth who are not served by the system.
3: And part of, to your point about economic development, that has to be done smartly and correctly. So right now on West Florissant, the site where the quick trip was that was burned down, there's now a nonprofit building. It's the Ferguson Empowerment Center, and it houses various nonprofits, Urban League, Salvation Army, and others. So a little bit further down the street now, there's a Boys and Girls Club. From what I understand now, is also a nonprofit and so if you think about economic development, yes, you can build buildings, but if there's no property tax, real estate tax, sales tax, business license tax, all of those, funding the school districts, the economic development still does not help.
2: And that's one of the areas where Collins' book is not just past, but it's present. <laughs> These same kind of decisions and where we allocate resources are still happening today, um, and there are black neighborhoods that are disappearing because of it.
0: That's David Dwight. He's the executive director of Forward Through Ferguson. We're also talking today to Erica Williams. She's a lifelong North County resident. She's the executive director of the nonprofit, A Red Circle. And we're talking about Colin Gordon's book, Citizen Brown. Um, if you'd like to join the conversation, feel free to give us a call at 314 382 8255 That's 382-Talk, or send us a tweet at STL on Air, or email us at talk at stlpublicradio.org. Um, Colin Gordon, why was St. Louis hit? so hard by white flight. It's obviously something that many cities experienced. Was there a unique set of conditions here that, that made things worse?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, there are a couple of problems here, uh, one of which is uh, for a long time, through most of the 20th century, the state of Missouri had no real regulation of municipal incorporation and annexation. If you had six houses and six garbage cans, you could call yourself a town.
0: And is that different than other states? Yes, okay. other
1: states. I mean, for example, if you look at cities in the southwest, they're, you know, San Antonio is eight hundred and ninety-five square miles because they just annex new territory and keep it within one jurisdiction. And so, you know, Missouri's lax incorporation standards allowed these postage stamp municipalities to crop up uh, right on the city's edge and and start to poach the city of its tax base and its population and and its uh, uh, economic resources. The I mean, the other thing is St. Louis has not, uh, um, across this history, uh, grown very dramatically. And and so it's sort of a boom and bust economy. It's a river-based economy that hasn't sort of reinvented itself the way it's sort of Pittsburgh and Chicago have in the post-industrial era. So, you know, it's a remarkable metropolitan setting whose population since 1950 has about doubled, but its land area has grown twelve times, mm-hmm. and the and you know the north side of the city is now basically empty of residential occupancy.
0: Now you write that local policies and services like policing and education were weaponized to maintain civic separation. Give us an example of that.
1: Well, um, I mean, we've talked about some of the examples. I mean, one one of which is the willingness. I mean I think municipalities and school districts are really remarkable jurisdictions because you know you have these stable jurisdictions like states and counties and people move in and out of them. But municipalities and school districts, they they draw their own boundaries and they draw them in order to include and exclude people. It's some of the examples we've used. So, you know, and when you fragment your schooling in that way and when you allow your, your schooling to to the quality and resources of the schools to reflect the underlying value of property, that does a lot of damage when you allow private developers essentially to determine land use and to build most of your infrastructure you leave behind communities like elmwood park and meacham park that were already there Mm -hmm. and you know the final sort of important service which i argue is public public safety you know as my co-guests know much better than i do and and david's story was, was emblematic you know, you do get a lot of that public service, but you're targeted by it rather than, uh, than kept safe by it.
0: Mm-hmm. David, I see you nodding there.
1: <laughs> yeah, and we recently
2: uh, did a, a really large report called the State of Police Reform to look at what is the state of these services um, and on for whom do they benefit. Um, and we found that that fragmentation of having almost 50 police departments across the region, partly because of that municipal fragmentation, has really led to a system of unaccountability for a lot of these departments um, that will lead them to do things like finding residents to <laughs> prop up budgets for these small municipalities.
3: Mm-hmm. Erica? Well, I was going to say also, it. <clears throat> pardon me, It creates space where you're talking about economics and resources and families that are already strapped financially. Someone here in St. Louis could have an expired um, temporary tag on their license plates. So here in St. Louis, you have to pay personal property tax every year to get a new tag on your license plate. You could drive down one street and hit several different small little towns and get a ticket in each one of those and that's potential court costs, potential court dates, potential time missing work, just for a temp tag. So that's part of the fragmentation that needs to be solved. But unfortunately, you know, going back to your point about the, the better together plan. Mm-hmm a lot of that just really wasn't addressed properly. Mm -hmm.
0: Do you feel any hope that, now that we're talking about this different plan, uh, the Board of Freeholders plan, do you think there can be some good that can come out of that that can address what Better Together didn't? David, I see you nodding a little bit, do you think so?
2: So I think it really, so so much of it depends on what the process looks like. If it's a traditional process, how we've always done things in St. Louis, um, that's closed door, does not have large amounts of community input, or has community input that is wider than our actual population of the region, I think it'll produce the same results. I think if it actually defines a new level of civic participata- participation, similar so much of the Ferguson Commission's way of involving 3,000 community members, hundreds of local experts, both from an academic standpoint, but also from their deep experiences with racism in the system, then I think it could create a, a new, better outcome.
3: Erica, do you share that optimism? Um, I will still like to see until we, I mean, we're talking about merging and, and changing in the future. But what's happening right now, I would like to see some progress bang, made with what we have until, because if we, Before we start to overhaul the system. Yes, if we begin to overhaul a system and merge several towns that are already fragmented with racism and various policing. I mean, in North County, we have St. Louis County police covers some of it. The North County Police Cooperative covers some of it. And then there are some little towns that have their own police. Mm -hmm. I mean, those types of things you're talking about merging. You're merging confusion. So that, to me, would just create larger confusion.
0: Let's go to the phone lines here. We've got Harvey calling from Creve Core. Harvey, hi. You're on St. Louis on the Air. Hi. Thank you for joining us. What would you like to talk to our guests about?
1: I would like their ideas. Uh, I've been trying to work on a project that's getting our community together um, to improve the quality of education in our school districts that serve economically-deprived children. Hmm. It's exceedingly important, and it seems to me a very, quote, American, close quotes uh, task, and yet we're ignoring it. So I would like their collective wisdom and uh, share my number. I'm, I'm a volunteer. I'm willing to help and uh, uh, try to mobilize people in this effort. But what is their idea about Improving the quality of education in our St. Louis public school?
0: Thank you, Harvey. Uh, that's a great question. And I'd love to go to Erica Williams first since she has a, a lot of experience in these school districts. Erica, what is something that we could be doing that would improve?
3: Something that we could start doing right away is to really uplift and implement what's called wraparound services. Those are the extracurricular, whether it's nonprofit. Organizations or after-school programming that really provides students with what they need in order to not be distracted from learning. Mm-hmm. Right now, our children are hungry. Mm-hmm. Firstly, they are not getting adequate rest, and so there are spaces that can be created within schools to provide food that is outside of the, you know, your lunch and breakfast times. There are spaces that can be created to to create um, things like calming rooms and and spaces that children can kind of decompress so that they can then get their brains ready to learn. Right now we have, and I'm kind of doing my my doctoral dissertation on this. We're talking about closing the academic achievement gap. And one way that people are saying we should do that is by giving access to preschool sooner. But that what that does, if, if the children's um, trauma is not addressed, the hunger, lack of resources in the home such as lights and clean clothes and things of that nature, then what we're doing is we're setting up children to fail sooner rather than addressing their needs. Not all children are ready to get to school and actually be ready to learn letters and numbers. Sometimes they have to learn just life skills, things like listening and sitting still and sharing and sharing their thoughts. So Mm -hmm. really incorporating wraparound services and also um, adding social emotional learning supports into the current curriculums.
0: I think that's a really nice, good, concrete step. Colin, Gordon, is there anything in your studies where you'd say, hey, this would be something we could do that would help?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I mean a couple of things. I mean, I, I, I highlight education in the book as a core service, not, not just because it's the most important public service that we provide, but it's also where children learn to be citizens. And so I think it's extremely, you know, uh, in-school policies are extremely important because, you know, you learn how to be a citizen in a different way in an under-resourced school with a policeman at the door mm-hmm. than you do, you know, in a in a well-resourced school. So I think resources are extremely important. A couple of issues there. One is, you know, you don't have to knock down all the municipal boundaries to have a serious tax sharing system where the school districts all go into a pool and share the resources. The other thing is we've gotten into a pattern of economic development tax abatements and TIF plans, all of which robbed the schools.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And so I think it would be a small step just to give schools a veto on those plans, because it's their resources that are being, it's essentially just a revenue grab by the municipalities to do something at the school's expense. Mm-hmm. And the long-term promise is, yeah, 23 y- years from now, we'll have a bigger tax base, and it just doesn't pan out.
0: Um, David, we have time for just one more question, and that is I wanted to direct it at you. Of some of these ideas we've talked about today, um, as the executive director of Forward Through Ferguson, anything in particular that you just sort of want to end on and say, yeah, let's look at doing that?
2: Yeah, I think we have a few really amazing opportunities. Um, There's been a huge movement in St. Louis around breaking the school-to-prison pipeline. A lot of the things that Erica mentioned earlier about trauma-informed schools, ending childhood hunger and access to food in schools, You know, hungry children can't learn. Um, making sure that we have accountable relationships between police departments and schools so that we're not just funneling kids into the pipeline and thinking about bias. um, St. Louis region schools suspend black kids, black boys with a disability 24 times more often than white girls without a disability, the least likely to be suspended. And I think what Colin mentioned around those environmental factors around a school are so vital and important. So thinking about inclusionary zoning, Um, protecting those that use Section 8 vouchers, thinking about reforming our tax incentive system so it's not just draining money and giveaways to those who don't need them, but they're actually developing our communities in ways that are equitable. Um, and and pay attention to how we've disinvested in black communities previously.
0: That's David Dwight. He's the executive director of Forward Through Ferguson. David, thank you for joining us today.
3: Thank you so much.
0: And Erica Williams, uh, who was also here with us today. She's the founder of the nonprofit A Red Circle. Thank you so much for being here.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: And Colin Gordon, uh, the author of Citizen Brown, um, which is now available for those who want to read more about this topic. Colin, thank you so much for being here. Thank
3: you.